Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you are listening to Faith Is, the program where we say that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we want to stretch each other in God's direction and help each other develop the kind of absolute confidence that leads to trusting God and doing what God says. Today on the program, we're going to answer a question that is on the top of many people's minds this weekend. That question is, should Christians celebrate Halloween? And maybe more importantly, we're going to talk about how to decide whether we should celebrate Halloween, because it's important to me, I hope it's important to you, that we learn how to make good decisions, good decisions informed by the Bible, and consistent with what God is doing in our lives, or what we sometimes call convictions. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But mostly on the program today, we're going to talk about instant sermon. What is instant sermon? Well, at our church, every month where there are five Sundays in the month, we take the fifth Sunday for what we've called instant sermon. It's a pretty simple idea, not very complicated. But at our church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, we set aside that Sunday to have a conversation. It starts out by people asking a question. Now, what I do is I invite people to write a question on a little card, three by five card, index card, and they drop that in the offering and the ushers collect them and give them to me. And then we use those questions. Sometimes they're centered on a verse in the Bible or a Bible story. Sometimes they have to do with something that's going on in the issues of the day, whatever it happens to be. Well, I just take the cards one by one and we talk about them. I don't pretend, and I make it pretty clear that it's not Stump the Pastor, although I've noticed a lot of people seem to think it is. No, it's not Stump the Pastor. That would be way too easy. It's, a, it's an idea, or it's a device, it's a, a method that we use to help us talk about things that are on our minds and begin to ponder what it is that God is saying to us about some of these things. And so this weekend is Instant Sermon Sunday. It's the weekend we do that. So here on the program, we've been talking that same language of Instant Sermon on these fifth Sunday weekends. And so we're going to take a look at that, and we're going to answer a few questions. And we're also going to to get to 10 things, I think. I thought them last week, but didn't get to them. So We'll take some time today to get to those 10 things, and I hope we don't run out of time. It's possible. But we want to start with instant sermon and the idea behind it. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when I was reminding everyone that instant sermon was coming, I said in church, and I explained to them what I just explained to you about, they can write a question on a card, and and we would consider it and talk about it. I didn't promise I would know the answer. That's not the point. The point is, let's think together about those things. But I said to them something I've never said before, never once ever. I said, yes, it's Instant Sermon Sunday. It's time for you to write your question down or bring your question with you when you come to church. But I said, someone needs to be sure and ask me about the Mount Abal curse tablet. I've never said to people, you need to ask me this question. Well, why was I doing that? Well, because there is a, a cursed tablet that has been making the news. It was discovered not long ago in Israel, and we need to consider what it's about. And I think it's important for people to be aware of those kind of things. And 
And it's kind of fun to, to think through the, the what-ifs about that and the what we know about it. It's not all settled. There are still some things that will be sorted out. I don't know what the final conclusion will be, but it's a very intriguing discovery. And it seems like we need to pay attention to those kind of things. So we're going to talk about, um, on our instant Sunday service, we're going to talk about the Mount Ball curse tablet. And I thought we ought to do that here on the program as well. Now, first of all, when you say Mount Ball, sometimes people say E-Ball. And I don't know exactly what the right pronunciation is. When you start looking into these pronunciations, you can often find whichever pronunciation you want to find. Uh, it's just kind of interesting that way. But most people, different than what I thought at first, most people seem to be calling it Mount Ebal. So I'm going to try to do it that way. But if I say a different pronunciation, you'll just remember, oh, yeah, somebody else pronounces it that way too. Pronunciation isn't the end of the world, but we do want to try to be as accurate as we can. So let's consider what's going on here. And, and our first question should be, what's up with the Mount Ebal curse tablet? Well, a little background will help us with that. And then we can talk some of the specifics about that specific tablet. Whenever you mention the word curse, people tend to think of different things. Maybe they think of curse words or cursing. Maybe they think of someone putting a curse on someone else. What are we talking about when we talk about a curse? Well, the Bible talks about blessings and curses, and it talks about them in relation to forming a covenant or participating in a covenant ceremony. Part of the covenant ceremony, going all the way back to Abraham, when God said to the, the guy who was then called Abram, he became Abraham as a result of the covenant, when God said to him that he wanted to be his covenant partner there, agreement was finalized in a covenant ceremony. Part of that covenant ceremony is the pronouncing of blessings and curses. Blessings, if we keep the covenant faithfully, curses, this is what's going to happen to me if I break or violate the terms of the covenant. And so this covenant that God started with Abram, who became Abraham, became the functioning relationship between God and his people going forward. So when we talk about God's people being people of the covenant, that's what it refers to. I think it's a very, very important idea for us to understand or practice for us to understand because that's the way God began to reveal himself and his relationship to people. And if God thought that was a good way to relate to people, then seems to me we ought to pay attention to that and try to understand it so that we'll understand what God is trying to say to us and what God expects of us. So the blessings and curses, part of the ceremony of forming a covenant, the blessings were here. It's the good things that will result from this joining together when we're faithful to the terms of the covenant. And here are the bad things that will happen to us when we don't. Now, this idea of curses, we might feel a little more comfortable with saying is blessings and consequences. That's what the curses are about, the consequences of failing to live up to the covenant. And so there are consequences when we don't live up to what God told us to do. So we have the Ten Commandments, thou shalt. And so there are blessings when we keep those commandments. There are consequences, or the Bible uses the word curses, 
when we don't keep them. So this whole idea of the cursed tablet that was found on Mount of All is consistent with this idea of covenant. And we know in Deuteronomy, you can read it in chapter 27, there is a description of what the people are to do. Moses and the elders of Israel charged all the people as follows. I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 1. Keep the entire commandment that I'm commanding you today. On the day that you cross over Jordan into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and cover them with plaster. You shall write on them all the words of this law, and when you have crossed over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones, about which I am commanding you today, on Mount Abal, and you shall cover them with plaster. And you shall build an altar there to the Lord your God, an altar of stones on which you have not used an iron tool. You must build the altar of the Lord your God of unhewn stones. Then offer up bird offerings on it to the Lord your God. Make sacrifices of well-being and eat them there, rejoicing before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very clearly. So this tablet was found on Mount Abal, which is the mountain that's mentioned here, along with there's also reference in other places about this same ceremony they were to conduct when they entered the Promised Land, a Mount Gerizim. Well, on Mount Ebal, some years ago, archaeologists discovered an altar that they believe, and there's always controversy with these things. So when I tell you that they believe, and it seems likely that this is an altar, or the altar, I should say, that Joshua set up when they entered the Promised Land, there are always going to be people that raise questions, and that's fine. That's how we learn, by asking the questions, challenging them, refining our understanding, and coming to the right conclusion. So here we are at Mount Ebal. They discovered an altar through their archaeological excavations. They believe it's Joshua's altar. And they took, as they took out the, the dirt and uncovered the altar, they put aside the scraps. So there were three, as I understand it, three scrap heaps, or they call them dump sites. Uh, in, in this case, they call them the Mount Ebal dump sites. And so sometimes, and it was true in this instance, people will come along and they will sort through the dump sites and see if perhaps something was missed. I was very interested when I visited Israel some years ago to see great piles of these pottery shards and other things in what I came to understand to be these dump sites. Well, they had done the, the excavation, the archaeologists had, and they determined that these things that were piled up there were not of value. I don't know the things we saw, what time period they would have been from. I just know that we saw them and it seemed really odd to me to see these piles of, of broken pieces of pottery just just right there. You can walk right up to it. I thought, why aren't these being preserved? Well, apparently there's a lot of this stuff that that is uncovered and apparently has no real value to inform our understanding of things. And so they leave them there. And the leader of our tour group, David, encouraged us, if you like, a, take a piece of this, you can take it home with you. 
I guess that was one way to clean up the mess. I don't know. But so I have a little bit of an understanding of what they mean by these dump sites. I didn't quite understand how seriously they take them until I learned about this Mount Ball curse tablet. Well, a team went over in 2019 and began to sift through using some, as I understand it, newer methods to sift through the material that was put in the dump site. Now, when they put the material in the dump site, it means they could find no real value in it at the time, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't anything of value in there. And that's why they sometimes go back and go through them again. And as the methods develop and as they get better at it, that's what they do. They hope to find something of interest or of value. Well, they discovered something of enormous interest and potentially enormous value in December of 2019. It was this Mount Ball curse tablet. Well, what exactly is a curse tablet? Well, this curse tablet does actually contain words, and they haven't released all of what they discovered from this tablet. Words that re- remind us and refer to and we think they are related to this, this covenant renewal ceremony that Joshua led the people in that Moses told them to conduct when they came into the promised land. And there are, and if you read on in Deuteronomy chapter 27 where we stopped, you will read lists of curses. And if you keep reading, you'll read lists of blessings. The idea was that they were to follow the covenant and that would result in blessings. And if they didn't, that would result in curses. In fact, part of the instructions were that the people were to be divided up, and some of them were up, were to go up on Mount Gerizim, and some of them up on Mount Abal, and pronounce the blessings from Gerizim and the curses from Abal down on the valley below, so that all of the people would be reminded of the importance of following God and doing what he said. So they discovered in this dump site this little tiny curse tablet. And when I say little tiny, I mean really tiny, less than one inch square. Uh, If I understand it right, it's um, two centimeters by two centimeters. And that's really small. Real small lead tablet. It's folded, which apparently is what they did after they would etch the words into the tablet, and we'll talk about what it says in a minute, they would fold the tablet and thus seal it. At this point, we haven't had anybody figure out how to open the tablet without ruining it, because the lead is hardened and brittle at this point, and so they don't want to damage it. But anyway, they found this little tiny tablet that we're calling a curse tablet, and inscribed on it were some 40 ancient Hebrew letters. These date back to, I believe I understood, 200 years earlier than we thought the first writing would have occurred. The lead was analyzed in the tablet and discovered to have been from ore that came from Greece. So it's consistent with other lead artifacts that have been found around this time. So that kind of adds up. But here we have a 3,200-year-old, neatly folded lead tablet here on Mount Ebal, near, if you want to look at your map in your Bible, near the city of Shechem in Samaria. It has all these letters on it, and the people who analyze these ancient scripts tell us 
that these are the earliest scripts we have ever seen of the Hebrew language. Now, they don't call it Hebrew. They use technical descriptions and all of that. But let's just for our helpful understanding to realize this is script that is pre-Hebrew as we know it. And so they've been looking at that and they've been fascinated by that. They've done certain kinds of scans that are similar to what you might call a CT scan, if you're familiar with medical things that are a CT scan, where they can understand what was etched into the lead, where they can even analyze this little tiny tablet layer by layer so we can see what's inside the folds. And to be sure, they haven't released everything, but they have discovered some of it, and they have really really discovered something that if it all turns out, and we should know that by the end of this year, it's going through the process of, of review right now. If it all turns out to be what it really appears to be, it is just the most amazing thing. And it could be potentially one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever, according to some people. Can you imagine a, a tiny, tiny tablet, two centimeters by two centimeters, being the greatest archaeological discovery ever. Now, one of the reasons it's so significant is because of what it says on the tablet. And it would be the very earliest proof of the name of the Lord used in the Promised Land. Because one of the words that they've been able to decipher is the word Yahweh. And this predates everything we've known and it even points to literacy a couple of hundred years earlier than we thought. So the ramifications of this are pretty significant. And again, I, I want to be clear, we're in the early stages of this, even though it was just discovered in 2019. It takes a long time for them to go through and sort all this stuff out. But it's absolutely fascinating. And here's what it says on the tablet. And if you go online, you can look at some of the pictures of some of the things. And you and I wouldn't know how to read it, but this is what people who study this and have studied lots of ancient scripts tell us. The tablet says this, Cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed, cursed you will surely die, cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. Now that strikes us as, wow, that's pretty strange and strong language. Well, it, it is. But it's consistent with what the Bible says. If you go there and read Deuteronomy, the rest of that, what I started reading to kind of set the stage for this discovery on Mount Abal, it has quite a long list, more than one place in the scriptures, of blessings and curses. And what it means, as I said earlier, these are the consequences of failure to follow God. So this little tablet contains all kinds of tantalizing clues that will help verify what we have always believed that the Bible tells us. Now, please understand what I mean by verify. Well, you and I, most of us who have come to understand that the Bible was God's message to us, written long ago, and is currently valuable to us, and we believe its words. Well, what archaeologists do and other people do is they look for corroborating evidence. It's not that they doubt what the Bible says. Many of them are faithful followers of Jesus. It's that they keep looking to say, aha, look what we found. See, what we've always believed is now verified by this. 
For example, when I was young, very young, I remember people saying that there was no evidence that there was a man named Pontius Pilate ever lived. Well, I thought that was a little odd because the Bible said he did, and, and we all believed it. Well, what they were meaning was they hadn't, find any, hadn't found any of this corroborating evidence. Well, they have since found that, and now this little tiny curse tablet has been found, and we have potentially enormous corroborating evidence that what the Bible says and describes actually took place. It's also interesting, and you won't see a lot of this. I saw this on a um, presentation for a press conference. They referred to some of the plaster that had been found there in the early, uh, early excavation of the altar there. And the text, I think, was in part of what I read here, even talked about how God said that when they were to put the law on the plaster when they built this altar. Well, they have found pieces of plaster from that altar. They have not been able to see if there was anything inscribed on them. I mean, it's been a long time ago, 3,200 years. But there's some hope that perhaps, given that we found this curse tablet and we can date it to a certain period of time and understand that, there's some hope that perhaps with new methods, there will be some way to scan these pieces of plaster and see if indeed we have some of those pieces that were written on and, and following the instructions that God gave his people. Now, what's this have to do with anything else? Well, I'm, I want to talk about the use of the word curse in the Bible a little bit. And I suggested that when you understand that the Bible's reference to curses in many of its references has to do with covenant or the consequences of not following covenant, it's not the same as where people will say, I'm going to put a curse on you. That's not what's going on when we think in covenant terms. We're thinking more in terms of consequences. To be sure, the word that we translate curse has to be translated that way to be consistent with the language. That's fine. We all understand that. But it's not as though someone is calling down a curse on you or invoking a curse or has access to some supernatural power that will curse you. These uses of the word curse refer to consequences of not following the law. And it's important to follow the law and to do what God says. I think we all understand that. And we want people to actually pay attention and follow what God says. But let's not get distracted or confused, I should say, perhaps, by this idea of curse. What we're talking about here is not a curse in the sense that someone has put a curse on you. We're talking about serious consequences to failure to follow God. So because we think about curses and because this is the weekend before Halloween, another question comes up that someone may ask in our church. They haven't asked it yet to me. I've seen it out there a little bit, but I thought maybe we ought to think through this. Should a Christian celebrate Halloween? And that comes up in people's minds just about every year. And it's a good question to ask, and it's a good question to answer. It's interesting how many answers you can find when you go looking for it, and I'm pretty sure, I have almost no doubt, that if you want a certain answer to the question, should, I, should a Christian celebrate Halloween, you will find the answer you want to find. All right, because some people will say, no, definitely not, absolutely, positively, stay away from it. And others will say, 
uh, what's the big deal? It's just dressing up in costumes and collecting candy from the neighbors who are delighted to see the kids. Well, let's think about this a little bit. First question that comes to mind when we try to answer the question, should a Christian celebrate Halloween? We should say, well, what does the Bible say? You see, we make our decisions based on what the Bible says, correct? And we use scripture to guide us and we do our best to understand and interpret it. In my tradition, and really many people do the same thing, it's just not necessarily embraced by everyone, and different people evaluate these criteria differently. But in my tradition and my understanding of trying to understand what God says is the scripture is always primary. And then we use our reason to try to sort out what does it mean? What is God saying? How do we understand what he's communicating to us? That's, that's what I do when I study the Bible in preparation for a sermon. I look at that and I ask myself questions. I ask questions of the Bible text and I look for answers to that and I reason that through. I also discover in that study some insights to it based on my experience of life, based on other people's experience of life. And so the life experiences tend to be mixed into that as we're trying to understand what God says in the scriptures. So we're reasoning our way through and we're including our experiences and our understanding of those. And then we also look at the tradition. What has the church always believed? What does it believe now? And how does that inform our understanding of what does the Bible say? So if you're going to answer the question, should a Christian celebrate Halloween? You should ask, what does the Bible say? And think that through. So, as far as I can tell, there's no mention of Halloween in the Bible. Certainly no mention of Halloween as we see it practiced today or celebrated today. So we need to think this through. And one of the things we need to think through is, what do you mean by celebrate Halloween? Well, a lot of whether it's right or wrong has to do with both God's voice in us telling us whether we should or we shouldn't, and it has to do with our understanding of what we're doing. So let me give you an example. If you've ever been around kids, if you've ever been a kid yourself, and you have, I know you have, then you probably remember that kids, you're probably very aware that kids like to make believe about things. Sometimes they like to dress up and various costumes of one kind or another. Sometimes parents even save old clothes that are way too big for kids or whatever. And then kids get together and they figure out and they use their imagination and they play dress up. So they like make-believe. When I was young, this was way back in the 60s, in the early days of the space exploration, of the space race. Way back, I remember Alan Shepard and the first man, first American. I remember the first man, the Russian, and the first American then in space. I remember when we went from a single piloted spacecraft to two, the Gemini program, and then to three. Well, along about that time when the, the Gemini was going on, I was so fascinated by all of this and the desire to get to the moon. And I remember I fixed myself up a make-believe space capsule in the basement of our house. I don't imagine it looked like much, have no pictures of it, but I thought it was great. And there were two seats because it was Gemini, and I counted down and blasted off, all those kind of things. Because I was fascinated by space, it was, it was just make-believe. Well, if today people 
view Halloween as nothing more than just dressing up like an astronaut and going to the neighbors and saying trick-or-treat, then that sounds pretty harmless, doesn't it? If all it is is that, then what's all the fuss about? Fair question, right? Well, let's take it a step in a different direction. We have seen in my lifetime what I might describe, and I think you would understand what I mean when I say a much darker celebration of Halloween. We've seen people do enormous and elaborate decorations in their yards, the way people used to only decorate for Christmas. Now many people go far, far in in an extreme way to decorate for Halloween, some of them much more for Halloween than for anything else, certainly much more than some people do for Christmas. And so we remind ourselves that when we go down some of these directions and when we do some of these make-believe things, we have to we have to stay away from certain things because they are what the Bible called dangerous. So if you think of celebrating Halloween as honoring the occult or honoring Satan, and if what you practice and what you do and what you participate in is honoring evil, either Satan or I would go so far as to say witches and certain other kinds of frightening behaviors because certain characters are depicted, then that's what the Bible says is dangerous. Don't go there. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but we're going to have to take a break. So with just that introduction, and then we'll circle back to it, uh, we want to talk about Halloween. We want to help sort it out. And and I don't know that I want to answer it for you, but I want to help you come up with an answer that before God you you are comfortable with and it matches your convictions. So I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is, where we develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we'll be right back. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you, or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at CofixRx.com. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. 
Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. Welcome back to Faith Is, where we challenge each other and stretch each other in God's direction, where we have used the definition that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to apply some of that in our conversations on these programs. Before the break, we were talking about should a Christian celebrate Halloween, and I talked about how if it's nothing more than make-believe, nothing more than collecting candy, maybe that's enough to worry about and leave it there. I said that if it goes down a dark direction, which many celebrations of Halloween have, dark in all kinds of evil ways and tempting ways and celebrating evil deeds that people have done. I've seen depictions of costumes on the on the web, and you've probably seen them other places, of serial killers and the like. When we go in that direction, I think that points us in the direction of evil. When we go down the path of the occult, certainly that is a dangerous direction, and the Bible says, don't go there. Now, keep in mind, the Bible doesn't say that that stuff isn't real. It says it's dangerous, don't go there. So when you think of Halloween, if you think of Satan, and if it reminds you of those kinds of things, and you feel a check in your spirit, it's the Holy Spirit saying, don't do it. If all it is to you is benign, then the Holy Spirit does not say to you, stop. Then I believe you can, with confidence, dress your child up as an astronaut and collect candy from the grandparents and then do your best to keep them from eating too much candy at one time. Now, it's also very interesting to me that years ago, churches, and that may still happen, I'm just not aware of it, would sponsor haunted houses around Halloween, and they'd use those for fundraisers, and sometimes they would use them as attempts to scare people into following Jesus. I was never really comfortable with that, and our churches where I served never participated in those kinds of things, but a lot of churches did at one time. And I find that a little worrisome. I find that a little troubling. I'm not sure why we think we need to be entertained by being frightened. When the Bible says over and over, fear not, it seems entirely inconsistent for us to use fear as a form of entertainment. So I don't want to do that. I also am aware that when you ask the question, should Christians celebrate Halloween, then you also have to ask the question, should Christians celebrate Christmas? Should Christians celebrate Easter? And it kind of goes on and on and on. Well, there are Christians who don't believe we should celebrate Christmas the way people typically do. They just don't think it's right, and they cite reasons for it. Similarly, they don't think we should celebrate Easter the way it is often celebrated. I respect that. It's also interesting that in more than one instance on some of these things, you look at the history and you look at how things have changed, Christians sometimes have taken what turned started out to be ceremonies that we could not participate in and would not participate in and celebrate, but God has redeemed them and made them something different because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, what God is doing in the world is trying to make the wrong things right, and he's trying to put things back together. That was the purpose 
of the law telling us how to behave to avoid the curses we talked about earlier. That was the purpose of the coming of Jesus, to crush sin and evil at the cross. And so God has been working in our world to overcome these evil kinds of things. So I want you to make a good decision, and I want you to to pray about it and ask God what you should do. Now, if you have deeply felt convictions, and some people really do, and we usually hear from those people, if you have really deeply felt convictions that you don't want to celebrate Halloween or other certain holidays, then I want you to stick by those convictions firmly and with great conviction. I don't want anyone, I don't want me or someone else talking you out of them. If God has spoken to you and said, that's off limits, stay away from it, then I want you to do that. You have my full support, and I will defend you before anyone because I believe that God has called us to have convictions about things. And if you have that conviction, wonderful. I'm really glad, really glad, because one of the problems these days is that people lack conviction. Too many Christians never say no to anything. They just go along with everything. And we need Christians who will stand up and say, as I understand my relationship with God, he has said to me, this is off limits. This is my position. This is where I stand. That's that. So go for it. At the same time, we all, no matter where you come down on some of these things, we all need to respect each other. So if you have strong convictions, it's not your responsibility before God to impose those convictions on everyone else. Explain why you believe it. Defend your position. Stand up for that conviction. Don't cave in. Expect everybody else to respect you. But do not impose your conviction on other people. Because when you do, then you make that an obligation on someone else. Now they are obligated to do what you say. And all of this leads to a very pernicious aspect of some people's celebration of Christian faith called legalism. It's the development of a code of conduct that says, if you don't do this and this and this and this just the way I say and believe, then you are not a Christian. And what ends up happening is certain people set themselves up as the judge of everyone else's conduct. And I don't see any way that's beneficial or helpful. It doesn't help the person who sets themselves up as judge, and it doesn't help the people who are now being called to account by these people and told how sinful they are. So let's have convictions. No matter where you come down on these things, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, 4th of July, wherever you come down on the celebration of these things, make sure that what you do to celebrate them honors God, It doesn't violate a biblical principle, certainly does not worship or honor evil or the occult. Then take your stand, and if your conscience is clear before God, walk in faith. If you have a problem with it, then walk away and don't do it at all. I I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Well... I guess with all of that, we should probably now pivot over to 10 things. Now, some of the questions that I, that I might ask and answer are included in these 10 things. I really didn't do that on purpose, but as I was looking at them, I thought, yeah, these are some of the things people do ask about. But let's talk about these 10 things. I mean, we really only talked about two questions. What's the significance of the Mount Ebal curse tablet? And we sorted that out a little bit. We'll be watching that, won't we? I encourage you to pay attention to that, see how that sorts itself out. And we talked about 
a lot of the aspects of should a Christian celebrate Halloween. And I don't want to be here to tell you what to do. I want to be here to help you sort that out and come to convictions because you answer to God about that. You don't answer to me. And aren't you glad? Well, I sure am glad that I don't have to be your judge. I just have to faithfully talk to us about what God says, and then we answer for ourselves before God. So let's go on to some other questions, and they're, they're probably embedded here in these 10 things that some people might ask. And, and one of the things that I've, that I've really noticed a lot lately is that this business of parental rights really does matter. It, it's something that is really a surprise to me that it's come up as an issue, but it's come up as an, as an issue all across the country, especially from my observation as it relates to education, sometimes to medical things. But my focus has mostly been on education. And, and I, I just want to say one of the things that I think all the time is that parental rights matter. I don't always agree with everything a parent will decide about their child, but I don't know their child as well as they do but I respect that they have a responsibility before God to raise that child, and I want to respect and help them make good decisions. I certainly don't want to usurp their opportunity to raise and shape that child. It really does matter. And and I caution parents, and I like this. I learned this far too late to help me, but I heard a pediatrician one time say that he always says to young parents as he's helping them with the physical side of their child. He says, enjoy your child until they're two. First two years, just enjoy them. It's a lot of fun. He said, from the age of two for the next 16, maybe 18 years, you need to spend every bit of your energy in shaping that child and raising that child into a person you will want to hang out with someday. That's why I think parental rights matter. Nobody said you should usurp them or get in the way of that. The other thing that I think, the second thing I think, is that it's amazing to me that so many people oppose parental rights. Why would you be against that? Now, I understand there are some parents who do not treat their children right. I, I get that. I'm aware of that. I hope we all are. And in those situations, we have an obligation to intervene to protect those children. But that's really the exception, not the norm. And yes, we will quibble about things. And I've sometimes seen parents make decisions about this child that I wouldn't have made, or they correct a child for something that I thought was not that serious. But that's looking through the eyes of a grandparent, maybe, at at children today. When my children were young, I was much more careful about that. And maybe rightfully so. Maybe I have developed, maybe I've mellowed too much. I don't, people probably wouldn't say that about me, but... I still need to respect the parents because they know what the child's wrestling with more than I do. But it's amazing to me how many people just don't support parental rights. And and related to that, the third thing I think is that their opposition seems to be connected to their amazing confidence in government. And and I scratch my head all the time because I see this in a lot of places. People seem to have this absolutely bizarre confidence that government will do things right all the time, no matter what. So I mentioned parental rights as it relates to school. Well, people want schools. Every now and then you'll hear this, and sometimes way too often. Fortunately, that battle is going in the direction of the parents in Florida. But you'll hear people say, the schools know best what the kids need to learn. We just need to let them teach them, and the parents need to stay away. 
And I'm thinking, there's no way under God's blue sky that that's the right way to think about it. Who in the world has enough confidence in people who don't even know our children to do the right thing by them? Who in the world has confidence in these people who will tell you they care about kids, and I'm not questioning that they do, but who believes that they know better about all of these children? When they come into school on the first day of school, many of these people don't even know their names. They have to learn the names of the kids. So how can we assume they know best about the kids? And when our government provides public schools and says they know best, I have to object and say, no, I don't don't agree with that. And I have to wonder why some people have so much confidence that government will do the right thing. I, I just, I'm, there's, no, there's no evidence to support that in anything. I've had a friend who was worked in a local city government here in Florida some years ago. And he said, often I heard him say that the people he worked with, the other people that were that were part of the government of that city, he said they they really worked to do a good job and he thinks that thought they were doing the right thing or trying to do the right thing most of the time by being careful with money and all the rest of it. But he also was quick to say that the, all of the elected officials that he worked with could not carry that same reputation. Some of them were up to mischief. So we need to, we just need to be careful about all of that. I'm not trying to throw stones at everybody that works in government, far from it. But I think we have to be careful about having such, such blank check confidence in government. Fourth thing that I think is that much of the craziness of public policy gender identity, defund the police, follow your heart nonsense, flows from the assumption that people are good. So the thinking would go, if people are good, then it must be all of the other stuff, maybe restrictions or other challenges in life that they face that makes them bad. I haven't really thought about this for a long time, but I've been thinking about it a little bit more lately. And I think that's really, really important to come to grips with. The Bible reminds us that we are far from God and need God's help. The Bible reminds us that the only way we know what good is, is by looking at God and following what he says is good and right. To assume that all people are good all the time is a grave mistake. I don't mean to be hard on two-year-olds, but I do mean to be pretty obvious about it. If you've ever been around a two-year-old, and if you've ever seen two-year-olds playing, you can quickly realize that there's not inherent goodness in them, because if one takes the toy of another, you'll see the reaction is not exactly good. When they don't get their way because mom or dad says no, the reaction is not a smile and quick agreement. It is often to throw a tan temper tantrum. So for us to assume that people are good is just simply a, a significant mistake. And we can't live our lives based on that kind of an error. So remind yourself, I'm not painting all people as bad, and I look for the good in people, absolutely. But I also recognize that there's not inherent goodness in people. That's why we needed a Savior. That's why Jesus came. I need to face up to that, and I think you do too. The fifth thing I think this week is that elections matter. They have consequences. And so I typically remind people they need to vote. Now, one of the questions people might ask is, should Christians vote? After all, we say that 
that we're citizens of a different world, we're citizens of heaven, that this earth is going to pass away one day. All of that's true, but there's no place in the Bible that says allow the place to disintegrate into all kinds of evil just because one day God's going to come back and, and make a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. And part of our responsibility in our country is that we, as citizens, have an obligation to vote because we live in a country, as Abraham Lincoln said, that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when people complain about government, and we all do sometimes, we need to look in the mirror and say the government is a reflection of the people because we elected the people that are making these decisions. And if we want better decisions made, if we want righteousness to rule, we need to elect righteous people. And so elections matter. They have consequences, and we need to vote. Number six, I was thinking about our local situation here, and I don't know how it is in your area, but I would not be surprised that it's very similar. But here in our county, the school board races are the most consequential elections we've had since I've lived in Florida in more than 25 years. What's happening in our schools absolutely has to be corrected, and a big part of that correction is electing the right kind of school board members. We are fortunate that we have some righteous people running for school board in our area, and may God move upon the electorate to elect the right people because it really will matter. It is very consequential. They make decisions that affect our children, and our children matter to us. They matter to God, and we want the best for them. Now, that being said, number seven, people say, well, how do I know who to vote for? Well, that's, that's a challenge. I, I don't, don't deny that at all. And I've made an effort in recent years to get acquainted with a number of the elected officials in our area, from our state senator to our members of the state house. And that helps me understand where they come from and, and gives me confidence in who I can vote for and who I shouldn't vote for. I notice what the political parties say, and that gives me confidence on some things and great distress on others. And I'm not about the parties. I have often said that uh, what, what a friend of mine said, and he said he didn't care about the, the uh, donkey or the elephant. He was going to follow the lamb. I, thought, I think that makes a lot of sense. But we do have to make decisions. We can't just talk in theoretical abstract wishing. We have, to, we have to make decisions, and so we have to decide how to vote. And we can't, we can't run away from that decision. We can't pass the buck on that decision, because if we're going to be people of faith, and if we're going to live out our faith in the world, then we have to live it out in everything we do. And I'll be honest with you, there are often two candidates on the ballot, and in our system, it really always comes down to two candidates. One will win and one will lose. It's the nature of the way we have developed government in this country. You can object to that all you want, but it's not going to go any way, different way. It's not going to change anytime soon. may never change. So we have to decide between two people. And the best advice I've ever seen for that was, even if you don't know the candidates well and you can't sort it out, if you can come to, to some sense of which candidate will lessen evil, then that's the person you vote for. You know, you can tell sometimes what the candidates think on the issues, and the issues are part of the evaluation. So if they believe in an issue that will encourage evil or support evil, then you don't want to vote for them. Because as a Christian, we want to lessen evil. We want to overcome evil with good. 
So if you really have struggles with this, ask yourself, which candidate will lessen evil? And I believe that will help you make a much better decision. Now, along this line, number eight things that I think, people sometimes ask the question, can Christians be too political? Well, yes and no. I, I'm always suspicious about someone be, accusing someone else of being too political. I'm not really quite sure what they mean. A lot of times I think when people say, well, that person over there is too political, they say that because they disagree with what they think about the issues of the day. And so they accuse them of being too political because they don't want them to advance their perspective. At the same time, don't we need people in the political arena being political? I mean, what else can they be? If we have people that are running for the House of Representatives in our state or the state Senate, don't we need people that understand the political environment and how to navigate that environment? Well, the answer is, of course we do. Uh, by the mercies of God, I'm not that guy. I can look at it from the outside. I want to be involved in helping people think about the right things and do the right things. But I don't want to be in that arena. I've seen it enough, and I know it's not the place for me. So you won't find me there. But I do want to consider what is my role as a citizen before God in shaping the future of our country and of our community, and how do I get involved to help these people make the right decisions? And I do that regularly, meeting with them, contacting them, all those kinds of things, because I want them to hear from us. And wouldn't it be great, you ever thought about this, wouldn't it be great if every person who holds an office that has to make important decisions would consult their pastor before they made the decisions? I sometimes think that'd be quite an interesting concept. What if they called up and said, Pastor, I'm working on this. Help me think this through from God's perspective. Wouldn't that be great? I think that'd be really cool. Really cool. Number nine, things I think. I think that even when people hold views that seem absolutely outrageous to us, to me, that we need to respect them and we need to relate to them with love. We can disagree with them. I'm not saying we have to agree with them, but I am saying we need to lower the level of vitriol that goes into our disagreements. So last week I was in Orlando, Florida, testifying at the State Board of Education meeting in support of some rules that they were enacting in support of parents' rights. Well, there were a lot of people there that were against the things that I was for and that I was testifying about. And one mother in particular, I remember, she stood up to testify and she talked about how her transgender daughter, that's how she described it, her trans transgender daughter knew since she was the four years old that she was in the wrong body. And I sat there and I heard that and I went, hmm, dear. And I began to, to think through, what, what does that mother think that's so different than what I think? What does she not know about God that I understand about God? What are her assumptions about the way God formed people? How did she come to that place in her life where she could say publicly that her transgender daughter knew she was in the wrong body since she was four years old? See, where I come from, God doesn't make mistakes and God knows us from before we are born. And he knows we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when he makes us boys or when he makes us girls, he does it on purpose and he doesn't make mistakes. And it led me to thought number 10 along these lines is that 
I think we need to treat all people graciously. I know the, the disagreements are, are very serious. And I know that some people are not going to be persuaded to think the way you think or the way I think. I know that life has impacted them in one way or another. I know they've been influenced in one way or another, and maybe nothing I say, nothing I do could ever change their mind. Really, when it comes right down to it, I think the Spirit of God has to speak to them far, far more than my words will help. But I do know this. In all of these things, we can treat people graciously. And we need to be kind to people. We can disagree. We don't have to meet them halfway or anything like that. But we can be kind. We can be gracious in our attitudes toward them. We can respect them. We can love them. See, Jesus said there are two things that we're supposed to do. Love God with all our hearts, with everything we've got, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. At our church, we say it this way. We need to love God generously and people graciously. And if there's one message that we could take away from the Bible, I think it's summarized in that right there. Because Jesus said the whole law is summed up in love God with everything you've got and your neighbor as yourself. So let's end today by agreeing, no matter what we think about things, no matter where we agree and disagree, let's agree on this, that we're going to love God with everything we've got. We're going to love him generously. And we're going to love people around us graciously. Go do that and you will live. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Rick Stevens.